הערב הבאנו הישג אדיר. הבאנו את הליכוד להיות המפלגה הגדולה בישראל בפער גדול מאוד. נכון לרגע זה לנתניהו אין 61 מנדטים ולגוש השינוי יש 61 מנדטים. רבותיי, אני נחוש לקדם את ערכי הימין בכל ממשלה שתקום. לוחם הייתי, לוחם נשארתי, לוחם אשאר. אני כאן כדי להמשיך ולשרת את מדינת ישראל וביחד איתכם להיות חלק מההנהגה שלה. רצינו וקיווינו לתוצאה טובה יותר. נעמוד בהתחייבותנו לא להיכנס לממשלה שנתניהו עומד בראשה. אתן יודעות ויודעים שאני ידעתי שזה אפשרי והאמנתי שזה אפשרי. וכל מה שאמרנו לפני הבחירות אנחנו אומרים גם אחרי הבחירות. We have spoken so many times on this podcast of how Benjamin Netanyahu has sucked the oxygen out of the Israeli political system and made it all about himself. Well, here's another way in which it's all about Bibi. There's an unwritten rule about Israeli election nights. They end immediately after Netanyahu's election night speech. All the other party leaders get their speech in earlier and then we wait for another hour or so for Netanyahu to show up at the Likud rally. And once he's spoken, it's over. In the television studios, the second string of anchors and pundits take their seats for what is essentially garbage time. And political geeks like us know it's finally time to go to sleep. Do you remember the last time Netanyahu wasn't the last person to speak on election night, Dalia? Frankly, no. But to think about that question, I went back to the last time he did not become prime minister, and that was 2006. Exactly. Now, the candidate who won the election was in a coma. Ariel Sharon had established Kadima to great fanfare, riding the success at the disengagement, which was considered a success at the time. He ran on the platform of the Convergence Plan, talking about drawing down Israel's presence in the West Bank. The party won big 29 seats. It gutted Likud, which, remember, plunged to 12 seats. But Sharon had two strokes during the course of the campaign. Couldn't be there. I'm sure Ehud Olmert said something, but who remembers? Well, what happened that night was Netanyahu, who, as you said, his Likud plunged to 12 seats, knew that he was in danger. Knives were being sharpened in Likud for a new leadership race. And he, instead of waiting, as is customary for him, two or three hours until his appearance, he rushed to the Likud rally, writing in the car a few notes, gave his speech about how Likud will rise from the ashes and saved his leadership that evening. He could have well been uh, foiled by a palace coup in the next few weeks. He wasn't. One of the people there who stood behind him on the stage was now President Ruben Rivlin, his presence giving a lot of credibility to Netanyahu's losing speech. And the birth of a king. The rebirth of the king. And ever since, he's been going upwards... It's Election Overdose, episode 14, recorded on March 25, 2021, with 93% of the vote from Tuesday already counted. I'm Andrew Pfeffer, and with me is my co-host throughout the last three months of election overdosing, Dalia Scheinlin. So, who won, Dalia? I think this is the time to wax poetic. Who won? 
Who didn't win? What does winning mean anyway? Did we learn anything new about Israeli society, the right, the center, the left, Jewish or Arab voters, the Haredim, the former Soviet immigrants, or anybody else we've had on this show? Is this a change election or a stay the same election? That's a trick question. Both are true. Angel, what do you think? Well, first of all, let's put in a very, very important caveat. I mentioned before, 93% of the vote counted. It's still 7%. And that last 7% could change everything. No, so, it really couldn't change everything, but tell us what it can I mean, I, I know we've both probably been speaking to our favorite number crunchers in the last few hours. What can I change? I am my favorite number cruncher. Well, I was speaking to you as well, so you're one of my favorite number crunchers, no question about that. What can still change with the 7%? Apparently, there's a 40% chance, according to the last person I spoke to, of Likud gaining a seat off joint list, and about a 10% chance of Gidon Sao's New Hope Party losing a seat to Naftali Bennett. How does he have anything else left to lose? Because he has a surplus vote agreement with Bennett. So there's a small chance that the seat will go that way from New Hope to Yamina. If both those things happen, the whole narrative changes and the Bibi block is back on 61. But the chances of both things happening, according once again to my, uh, to my mathematician, is about 1 in 20. 5% chance. Not huge, but it's there. Let's just start with the headlines. The BB versus the non-BB block have come in at a very similar breakdown to the previous three elections at present, as of this moment. And it could change by the time this is broadcast. They only have 59 seats and the what is now being, being called the change block, which could be a strange name for it, considering we have no idea if they're actually a block. But, but it sounds good in Hebrew. Gush Hashinui works well, and it was coined by somebody who knows copywriting, Yair Lapid. I've been wondering why he didn't coin it earlier on in the campaign instead of after the elections were over. But that's where things stand now. We have two likely kingmakers. You want to tell us about them? Strangely enough, we were thinking the whole time that Naftali Bennett could be the kingmaker. But now we have, as you said, two. And if the BB bloc only has 59 or 60 seats and Naftali Bennett's kingmaker role is taken away from him and awarded to? Mansour Abbas. Who now, would have guessed? First of all, how old is Mansour Abbas? I'm going to say 50-something. So I googled him on Wikipedia just to see if his date of birth was there. And I have a surprise for you. He's younger than both of us. No. But this is one of the incredible things about Mansour Abbas. Let's, let's give him his full title. Leader of Ram, the conservative Islamist party, which broke away two and a half months ago from uh, the joint list and has surprised many, though not all, because some pollsters, especially our friend Yusuf Maklada, who has been saying throughout this election that Ram would cross the threshold, has surprised everyone by crossing the threshold. He's just in four seats now. That probably won't change. But one thing is for sure, whatever happens with the 7% of the votes remaining, he has crossed the threshold. The Islamists are in the next election. We'll talk about them at length in a moment. But right now, if the results remain as they are, Mansour Abbas, with his four Ra'am MKs, is the kingmaker. And Naftali Bennett, who is unpredictable, has seven seats at present, which means there are 11 seats basically up in the air. The only way Netanyahu seems to be able to form a coalition would be to get both Bennett in his government and get defectors from the other side. What does that mean? Can you explain that to us? Well, defectors or any MK who thinks that for some reason 
They're not going to stick with their party's line, whether it's for Netanyahu, against Netanyahu, sitting on the sidelines, and crosses the lines. And we had one defector in the election a year ago, Oli Levi Abikasis, who was a member of Labour Gesher Merit, a short-lived and ill-fated uh, merger between those three parties. And she, just two days after the election, suddenly decided that because of talk that perhaps some of those parties would work together with the joint list. And this was such an unthinkable idea. She was breaking with Labour Gesher Merit. And lo and behold, a year later, she's still around, but now she's a Likud MK. Now, it's not only individuals who could, who could defect, but there are parties who could defect from the change block and go into Netanyahu's government or parts of parties, which also happened last time. What are the chances? I think the chances this time um, are, are lower. There's a lot of, uh, there was a massive stigma around what Oli Levia because this did, despite a lot of, you know, the, the level of skullduggery in Israeli politics. It Defections are not that common, and I don't think it's going to happen this time. Just think of the two parties that split up. Blue and white broke over this issue. Labor broke over this issue. No party is in danger of breaking. What about Guido and Sar's party? Well, first of all, it's so small. There's not that many people to break away. He might not need very many. But here's what here's the thing about the people in that party. Most of them are Likud members who broke with Likud very publicly. And, and very recently. Couldn't they just go back? They, they, made a little could, mistake. they could go back, but this act of breaking with it, especially where Likud is today, the Bibi party, and everything they've said about Netanyahu over the last few months since they broke away, I don't think it's possible, but you know, surprises can always happen. Since surprises are the name of the game, and we've just had an election which ended unsurprisingly in the same way the previous three elections ended with a stalemate with neither Netanyahu nor the anti-Netanyahu bloc managing to muster a coalition. Perhaps they will over the next few weeks or months, but right now neither of them seem to have a pathway towards a majority in the Knesset. We still have to ask, especially because two days after the election, we're also two days before Seder night, in the spirit of Manishtana, what has changed all the same? What is noteworthy? What is surprising? And in the spirit of Manishtana, we both get four questions to ask. So, Dali, why don't you start? What to you is surprising and noteworthy about well, round four? That, I mean, you, you know, Manishtana are four questions. So the real question you're asking They're is what bit, are the changes? There's also four answers. True. The, the answers are, are in, the, okay. in the text. I agree. But let's just keep one overriding question. So that there is a question here, other than what has changed. The overriding question is, how did my forecast hold up? 40% chance Likud forms the next government, 30% chance there is an alternative coalition, 30% chance new elections. Don't answer now. Think about it. We'll go through these changes, and you're going to answer at the end. Well, I, it's on you. I, I, I just say that being a pollster right now is not the most respectable job in the last few days in Israel. Why? The polls were absolutely spot on. Which ones? The final... All of them, the final election, the, ele the election polls, the public opinion polls, not the exit polls, the opinion polls that accompanied us throughout this campaign, which our listeners know so well because I'm obsessed with them, will know that the final results were very close to the polling averages by the end. But the exit polls were different. The exit polls are now a later were once again different. And then the actual results. Exit polls are a whole different animal. Ah, so you're, you're not taking responsibility None. for exit polls, just for a poll. Okay. Okay, so, so what? Your, your, your first kushia, your first, first note It's not one. a question. The question is, well, okay, it is a question. I'm going to turn it into a question. It starts with an observation. The observation is that this was the Likud party's worst night in four election cycles. In April 2019, 
Likud got 1.14 million votes in September, 1.15 in March, 1.352 million votes. And now, as of the current count, 93% of the votes counted, 974,000. They've lost a lot of votes. They've lost about 370, almost 380,000 votes. So the question is, where did they go? And I think that they went to the following directions. They either didn't turn out. Angel, you have some interesting turnout data, and you've been visiting some of these places. They went maybe to religious Zionism because Netanyahu kind of encouraged them. Maybe they went to New Hope, but New Hope did so badly that it can't be very many. And maybe they went to Bennett, but he only got one more seat than Likud. It's just that anecdotally, I think we all know a lot of people who d- deliberated between Bennett and Likud. That's a traditional kind of dilemma on the right. Where did they go, Anshul? Well, I think many of them stayed at home, and we've seen that in the low turnout. But your first Kushiyah is mine as well. I went out and about around Israel uh, on election day. Haaretz, the Hebrew edition, sent me to try and get as many of the different Israeli tribes, like really snapshots of them uh, as much as I could, and get back on time to vote myself. And one of the places I visited was Ashkelon. Those who know, southern coastal plain, rather hard scrabble town, sort of in between lower, lower middle class and working class, and traditionally a Likud stronghold. Such a Likud stronghold that in 2015, in that famous the Arabs are are, are voting in droves election, Netanyahu made only one uh, visit outside of his offices or wherever he was hunkered down, and that was to Ashkelon. That is such a traditional stronghold for Likud that that was the one place he chose to show his face on that election. So I went to that same, very same place, a small rundown pedestrian mall in the older part of Ashkelon. I I visited there. And this is really a place where you have to work very hard to find someone who's not a Likudnik. And I found no motivation for for, for the election in general. The the pedestrian mall, a third of the shops were still closed down due to the to, to the lockdown there were for rent and for sale signs in the in the windows they were, you know, they'd gone out of business the two-thirds of the shops which were still open most of the people there were trying to do some kind of business on election day when people, everybody's on holiday they really weren't interested in speaking so about you're politics. saying it was more apathy and not so much i'm angry at netanyahu because he's on trial for corruption i'm angry at netanyahu for how he managed corona no you're just saying they were just demotivated i think it was bb fatigue and we're seeing it, you know, I've, I've printed out some of the of the city-by-city city election uh, data. So, we'll, you know, f- let's take Ashkelon, for example. I'm just searching here for, here for the... For the I'm uh, so happy that it took 14 episodes, but you're now a data nerd as well. Well, you know, one day in four years, well, now it's one day every few months. Uh, you, you know, we all have to do that. So where's Ashkelon? Ashkelon is here, yeah. So Ashkelon, in the previous election, just a year ago, exactly a year ago, they could win 48% of the votes. You want to know how much they uh, how much they got this time? How it's much? still a little stronghold, but forty percent. That's eight. Dropped eight percent. Dropped eight percent. One hundred sixteen thousand eligible voters in the city. Six and a half thousand of them who voted Likud twelve months ago did not vote Likud this time. Either they moved to other parties or they just stayed at home. But this is an accumulation of Bibi fatigue, and we see it in Likud, similar Likud strongholds around the country in Afula. Batyam Betchan, and in the biggest Likud stronghold of, of them all, my hometown, Jerusalem, where Likud dropped. Where's the numbers here? Likud was the largest party in tw- just 12 months ago. It was overtaken by United Torah Judaism this time. Likud won Naturally. 28% of the vote in the last election 12 months ago. It's down to 24% now. 
And if we look at it nationwide, as you said, they could have losing at least 300,000, probably 400,000 right. votes. Well, let's just also make it clear in terms of seats. Likud has 36 seats in the outgoing Knesset, and they are currently slated to get 36 seats. That's a big drop. Okay, what's the next, Kushia? What, what's yours? Uh, who are the losers? I mean, there are, we don't know, who, definitely don't know who the winners are, but there are a lot of losers. For example, Blue and White completely broke up. Bennett, I just want to say how fortunes change. Naftali Bennett, in Camille Folks's October 2020 poll, was polling at... Okay, do you want to guess? Tw- uh, don't guess. I'll tell you. 24 seats. That's a lot. People were talking about him. Journalists were calling me. Is he the next big challenger? Is he the king? He's down to basically seven seats now. If that count holds, it's just one more than he had in the outgoing Knesset. And Saar, Gidon Saar, just wow. He started out this campaign at 20 seats in the polls. He was the great big challenger, the great white hope of the right. He ended at probably six seats. Why did these people lose out? What happened to Naftali Bennett? Gideon Saar came along. Gideon Saar took away from Bennett a certain proportion of the seats he was projected to win at the time who were centre-leftists looking at Bennett. Not Bennett, no centrist, but who were voting for Neither Bennett. Neither is Gideon Saar, by Certainly the way. Certainly not Gideon Saar. Who, and these voters were voting for Bennett and then for Saar, at least in their minds and in their answers to polls, for the same reason. They seemed at the time a contender a challenger to Netanyahu's rule, and they seem to be an, an alternative, especially Bennett, who wasn't a member of Netanyahu's government in this round. Early on in the pandemic was a very strong critic, and we spoke uh, uh, with Nadavayal two episodes ago about how the centre-left over the last years failed to present any viable coronavirus policies to replace Netanyahu. The only serious politician with a prominent platform who was proposing... Uh, any kind of policies which were different than Netanyahu's was Naftali Bennett. So people were attracted to him both as a challenger and as someone who was presenting some kind of alternative policies in COVID. Then along came Gideon Saar, breaking with Likud in December. And by then we were already in election mode. And Gideon Saar, unlike Bennett, is also secular. He's a Tel Aviv. There is some, he's even more user-friendly towards the center, urban Tel Aviv center. But left. his policies are hard right, so there was a dissonance there from the beginning. But for, for in many ways, he's a, he was an even more palatable, I think, contender to Netanyahu. For centrists who would just want to get rid of Netanyahu and have sort of forgot about ideology as long as Bibi's still around. So Saar jumped up to 20. But then we had three months of an election campaign, and what happened? Saar just went on a consistent incremental decline in the surveys. I mean, I've heard lots of theories. My colleagues uh, who are in the campaign world think that his campaign was just scattered, and I thought his campaign sounded antiquated, and it didn't project any clear position. Like, I agree with you now. He basically took from the center. Blue and white was crashing. Those votes split themselves up between Yair Lapid and Gidon Saar, and eventually mostly went back to Yair Lapid. And I think this was just a natural procession. Yes, there was an excitement for Saar because there's always this lookout for the new white knight who's going to take Netanyahu down for a very short period, for like a, a blip. But he basically didn't take Netanyahu down. If anything, Netanyahu dropped six seats. If anything, maybe two or three of them went to Saar. Okay, but Saar was polling at 20 at his peak and he got six now. So these 14 seats of voters... They're the rest of the blue and white votes, Some of them went my back, first And question. some of them went back to Benny Gantz. Benny yes, Gantz's incredible comeback to eight seats after us all, and we all thought that he Let's wouldn't the cross math. the threshold. Blue and White had 33 seats, 17 went to Yesha Teed, uh, eight stayed with Gantz, that's 25, and then we're just missing eight, and 
uh, let's say two or three or four of them went so to them back Zara. to merits and labor and as well. merits and labor, which we're going to talk about because that's one of my next questions. But I do want to make one more point about why Naftali Bennett didn't do better. It's hard to know, but I I think that for one thing, he never really broke out of being a sectoral party representing primarily the right wing national religious community and competing with Likud a little bit. He never truly broke out of that. But what's interesting is the failure, and we talked about this last time, of economic issues to really make a dent in the Israeli political system. Naftali Bennett focused his campaign in a very disciplined way on his Singapore plan, which is kind of, you know, this 1980s revival of Thatcherism and Reaganism and, you know, small slash government and lower taxes and all this stuff. And they were very disciplined about talking about it every stretch. And it did nothing for his campaign. The one party that ran on a on an economic platform entirely by your own Zalicha was the just didn't even cross the threshold and that crashed by the end. Exactly. Right now on the on counting. What's your next Kushia? Well, I think that the most notable thing happening on the right was happening on the far right, because obviously Bennett and Saar failed to excite right-wingers. But Bezalel Smotrich and his party of Jewish supremacists, neo-Kahalists and homophobes not only uh, crossed the threshold, but have now six seats. Or They've been, they were up to seven in some of the no. counts. Where did those seats come from? This is what I discovered in my first stop when I, on election day morning. I went to Halnoff. Now, for anybody who knows Haredi Jerusalem, Halnoff is detached from the main block of central north Jerusalem where most of the Haredi population lives. It's a separate neighborhood just by the road leading to Tel Aviv. It's slightly more uh, upwardly mobile. People, the, the Shas leadership lives there, a lot of anglo Haredim live there. I expected to find people voting for Smotrich and, and Itamar Benkvir in the more, let's call it, working-class type of, of Haredi neighbors, the more Mizrahi type of Haredi neighborhoods. But even in Arnof, I think everyone I spoke to under the age of 20-something, anybody... So they got the young vote? The young vote was either saying, we are going to vote for Smotrich and Benkvir, or they were saying... We're going to vote for, for, for Gimel or for Shas, whether they were, they were uh, Mizrahi or Ashkenazi. Gimel being Torah Judaism, the Ashkenazi Judaism. Haredi party. Whether they were Ashkenazi or Mizrahi, so, so a lot of them would say, yes, I'll be voting according to my rabbi's orders, but actually, with my heart, I'd like to vote for Smotrich and Bengvir. This feeling of anti-establishment, anger towards the Haredi leadership as well was very palpable, and you could see it also on the... On the notice boards, the Haredi parties had put out a lot of uh, a lot of propaganda saying you have to vote like a real Haredi. In other words, don't vote for those imposters from uh, RZ religious Zionism. And by the way, religious Zionism—that's the name of Smotrich's uh, list—erased the word Zionism from their from their propaganda, which was directed at the Haredi community, and kept the pictures of Smotrich and Bengvir, who are very very popular, especially among these young people. And we're seeing it in the numbers. It's harder to break down because it, it's spread over 30 or 40 Haredi townships and neighborhoods. But I've already spoken to a number of people in those parties who are assuming that anywhere between 70 to 100,000 votes have been lost by Shas and UTJ. So I saw that you made that point, And that is fascinating because when you look at the numbers so far... The two Haredi parties, Shas and Torah Judaism, together have 16 seats, which is exactly what they had in the outgoing Knesset. How could that be? Well, first of all, don't forget that you would expect them to continually grow because of birth rates. And second of all, Offset this was... Offset by attrition. 
this was a low turnout election. Now, the one community which turns out even in a depressed coronavirus pandemic period is the Haredi community. Israeli critics would say even if they're dead. Exactly. And in this election, you would have expected them, both Shas and UTJ to put on a seat each, if not more. Those seats, which they failed to put on, and we can see it in the numbers, they did well because of the lower turnout. So they got the same proportion they got in the last election, but if you look at the numbers, they lost voters, and those voters almost all went to RZ. Okay, the next kushia, I think we're up to three now, is what happened to the left? Now, I think there's actually somewhat good news for the Israeli left, which may be the first time there's good news since I can't even remember when, maybe never. Not too shabby. Labor and Meretz in the outgoing Knesset, they ran together with Orly Levy. Some people said it wasn't a good idea. I think you may have just said it wasn't a good idea. Uh, they got seven seats. Now they're on course to get 13 seats combined, uh, where Labor is currently at seven, I think. I mean, this could all change within the margin of a seat. Meretz looks like it's back up to six. If those numbers hold, it's pretty impressive. Now, we, they probably came from blue and white. We did the math before. And I do want to correct also something that I said in, uh, I guess, three episodes now, uh, in which rumor had it that Michaeli, Mayrav Michaeli, the head of Labor Party, was planning to uh, recommend that Yair Lapid be the prime minister to the president. That actually didn't happen. Rumors are not always right. But despite that correction, she is currently meeting with Lapid this evening. So (laughs) all of this is sort of, I mean, put it this way. The left parties are now a more significant presence in the change block. What do you make of that, that the left has gone up after so much eulogizing of the death of the Israeli left? Well, I've never been a fan of the po- of pollsters saying that the Israeli left is dead because there's never been such a thing as the Israeli left. The Israeli center, and Meretz is a center-left party, and Labour is a center party, has always been there. It's never gone away. But it's also very, very fickle. Like as we just mentioned, many centre-leftists were at one point, at least, thinking of voting even for Naftali Bennett or for, for Gidon Sao. The left's problem, or what is called the left's problem, is not that the constituency isn't there. Most Israelis are on the centre. Most Israelis are still secular or very slightly traditional. The change is that the, the religious Israelis have become more right. I mean, that's the change. The question is, what story does the centre-left have to tell? And... What happened in this election is the Senate just said, we're here, save us, and people went back to save those traditional parties that their parents voted for, or maybe they voted for 10 or 20 years ago. Or maybe they actually thought we need parties that represent what we consider to be a more leftist position than Yair Lapid. However, they did not articulate any new narrative, and that is still has to be done. So yes, people like me and you probably who voted for Merits or Labour. How do you know? I voted Merits, and I'm, I'm very open about it. People like me, okay, we did this because we still identify with some very vague notion of ideals that these parties are supposed to represent. But they didn't articulate any narrative in this election, as they haven't for years now. And in a way, I'm fearful that the fact that they did better than just scraping over the threshold by getting four or five seats, but they got five, six, seven seats. Partly attributed to the lower turnout. Which favors the smaller parties. Which, to my mind, is worrisome because I think that this is not necessarily a good thing because it's going to make them think, oh, we're secure, we're, we don't have to worry so much until the next Gaval or the next election. But in between elections, the left doesn't think that it has to fight. Look at Antonio. Antonio fights his election from election to election, not from the moment the Knesset is dissolved. It's true. There is a narrative still missing that the left hasn't built up. And this narrative has to include lots of things. 
But right now, they have no idea what it includes. It's true. I will just point out that it's much easier to advance a narrative or an idea or a political brand when you're in power, when you are prime minister for 12 years. Labor and Merits haven't had much of a platform to advance any ideas in between election cycles. Nobody pays attention that's to a them. Ver- that's, a very, that's a very weak excuse. It's Labor excuse. and Merits it's not have, have huge it's, uh, uh, access to the media. It's not they are ex- the media. You know, it, yeah, actually, that's not really true. Uh, <laughs> They're a big that's part what of the, the media. So I see you've bought into the right-wing argument hook, line, well, and what's the expression? And sinker. And sinker. I knew you would know. Now, listen, I don't agree, by the way, that merits and labor didn't have a narrative in this election. They each did. They just didn't have a narrative. Save me! That was the, that no, was the narrative. If you were watching the campaign closely, like the political junkie in the room, you would know that merits was campaigning on sticking to its values and its principles. Which were? They made them clear in their ads. You clearly weren't watching. How many people watch election ads nowadays? I do. It's about a narrative. Anyway, that you, but I it's haven't not about, It's about I, a narrative you build up over years, not in three if, weeks if you of listen to them, you campaign. would know what it is. The other thing is that Labour absolutely had a narrative. I think Meirav Michaeli ran a pretty focused message in her campaign, which was gender equality as a stand-in for equality in general and bringing back truth to politics, which was a good play she on did. words. Which was a good is, play on words. Which was a good play on words because the letters of the ticket of the Labour Party say emet, which is truth in Here's where I disagree with Israel. you. Daniel. I haven't finished my point. How could you disagree? My, the, the end of my point... <laughs> the, <laughs> The end of my point is that that, I think, was a dog whistle to the voters that the, the, the opposition stands for is, first of all, getting a corrupt leader out of politics. So when she started with equality and ended with, I'm bringing truth back to politics, everybody knew what she meant. Only with labor will we stand against going into an Netanyahu government. That's my point. You can disagree with it now I if could, you want. No, but I agree with everything you've said except one thing. This is a campaign strategy, what they've used. It's a salvage, True. save us which is what Meretz did, the Gewalt campaign. And Merav Michaeli was the the only really real breath of fresh air in this election. Just her arrival on the scene, the different way she talks about everything, was the only novelty of this election, and it saved Labour. But this is not building. You don't build a narrative True. in three or four weeks of an election campaign. And it's campaign. not building as a camp. Exactly. It's separate party tactics. Then, it's, it's just very short-term tactics to save them the seats. Look, Labour won seven seats. Wow. This is Labour. This is the party that have founded the country. This is simply just keeping Labour Labour alive, but it's still on life support. Us us merits and thinking otherwise is very very short term, very dangerous. I'm just going to point out that all of those voters could have gone to Yeshatid if they were purely strategizing getting Likud out, and they decided that we wanted to support what in Israel is considered the voters are there. The vote, the constituency is there. But let's talk about another very important constituency. Nope. To me, was the most eye-opening visit on election day, and this was to Tira. Tira, for listeners who may not be acquainted, an Arab-Israeli town about 45 minutes drive from Tel Aviv, the main Arab-Israeli town in central Israel. And I got to Tira about 6.30 in the evening on election day, and I didn't find many people who were very interested in the election. It, it took- Sounds a lot like Ashkelon. Yep. Yep, it was very, it was very similar in a social economic kind of sense to Ashkelon, but when I did manage to start getting people talking about the election, I found everything very interesting. Tira is not one of the main centers of Islamism among Arab Israelis. There obviously are Islamists there, but it's not a big constituency, and I still found quite a lot of people who were planning or had already planned to vote for Mansour Abbas Israam, and. The reason was very, very clear. We are voting for Ra'am, and we vote, most of them said we voted for jointness in the past because we want to be part 
of the political discourse in Israel. Ram is talking about how to reach agreements with the government on funding for city planning, on funding for most important thing for, for the fight against criminal violence. Although maybe one of the most important things to Mansour Abbas is also funding for his schools. Which they did not mention, interestingly. But maybe they don't know about they, it. They spoke about mainly about violence and about city planning. Those are the main things that they're interested in. And Mansour Abbas is talking brass tacks about that. It's interesting. It reminds me of your description of the Haredi neighborhood of Harnoff, where they're leaving the traditional parties they have voted for, for a kind of up-and-coming party. Is this a sort of anti-establishment on the fringes no, of the this younger is generation? No, this is actually going but into the join, establishment. But that is anti-establishment because the established... Arab leadership in Israel has generally wanted to stay out of Israeli politics, okay, uh, of the Israeli executive. So I, so I have the Tira numbers for, uh, here with me. What percent in the previous election voted for joint list? Oh, let me guess. No, let me guess. 91%. 97%. I was close. What percent voted for joint list in this election? 51%. 48%. But I wasn't that far off. Not far off. 48%. 41% voted for Ram. Once again, this is not an Islamist town. 41%, just 7% yeah. less than the joiners. And by the way, 8% of Tira voters who voted for joiners last time voted for Israeli slash Jewish parties, whatever you want to call them, for Jewish parties this time around. And by the way, we're talking so much before the election about Netanyahu's Arab offensive. What percent of Tira voted the could? Well, Tira, I don't know, but I will say that we've heard that they've had a significant rise to the tune of a few thousand votes in some of the other towns around Israel. I still don't think they even got one extra so seat, but you'll tell me. with 93% of the national vote counted, Likud got 0.17% in Tira, 23 voters. As I predicted. I just want to say also about Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel. They were demotivated. This was, uh, I think, a predictable response of uh, what we see what we the estimates we're hearing now is that their voter turnout was significantly lower than jewish turnout probably around 52 53 percent as opposed to overall turnout which is 67 percent and the irony is that if Mansour abbas really plays kingmaker here and there is a scenario in which netanyahu forms the most ultra supremacist dare i even say proto-fascist yes i think i will racist theocratic homophobic kahanist led government I it could I be with, with the support i know but it could be only with the support of Rob, which, which, which would be the first time there's an independent Arab party in government. I don't think it'll happen either, but that would be a supreme irony. It would. So we have to sign off now. We're saying goodbye to Israeli politics, and we're even saying goodbye to our favorite part, the jingle. To do that, we're going to hear a song that has nothing to do with Israel or Israeli politics, a song by a great singer who also said goodbye. She died in 2020. And we're going to end on this optimistic note. We'll meet again. Don't know where. And we're almost done. This is the last episode of the first season of Election Overdose. And thank you to all the listeners who have been telling us they want us to stick around. But we need an urgent detox. In my case, at least a rehab. A rehab from all this booze we're drinking while we record. Yes. Uh, Dahlia, what are the chances we'll be back in season two of Election to Overdose in just a few months? Well, you heard what Vera Lynn said. We'll meet again. Indeed. And that's it. We'd like to thank the incredible guests who contributed their insight, wisdom and humor over the last three months. Our producers throughout the series... Jonathan Manevich and Amir Factor, and most of all, you, dear listener. 
You can listen to all our 14 episodes along with all the latest breaking news and analysis on the elections aftermath on harris.com. And of course, all our episodes are on all the best podcast providers and some lesser ones as well. Do take a break from all the coalition building and horse trading over the next few days and weeks. And wherever you are, have a liberating Pesach, a restful Easter and a blessed Ramadan. I'm Anjo Pfeffer, together with my co-host Dalia Shendin. Thank you for being with me, Dalia, for all this ride. What do you call it? It's only been a pleasure. In addition, it's also been a few amicable disagreements, which we all learn from. Perhaps. <laughs> from the Harrod studio here in Tel Aviv, from the country with many king. From the country with many kingmakers, from the country with but no king. From the country with many kingmakers, but no king. See you next time.